Hello, and welcome to Commercial Observer's Backstory. This week, you'll be listening to a very seasonal episode with Max Gross, our editor-in-chief, Kathy Cunningham, our new executive editor, congratulations on the well-deserved promotion, Kathy, and Chava Gurari, our DC and South Florida expert. This episode is all about water rights, humpback whales, and of course, climate mitigation. It's one of the most fun conversations I've gotten to produce with the team, so grab a coffee and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Backstory. My name is Max Gross. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Commercial Observer, and I'm here with Commercial Observer's Executive Editor, Kathy Cunningham, and our uh, DC and Florida Editor, Hava Garari. Kathy, Hava, how are you guys today? Doing well, Max. How are you? How are you, Hava? Doing great. So it is a little hot this week. A um, little, little summary, um, and I, for one, have been thinking very much about cool oceans, about beautiful water, crystalline, lovely aqua, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, um, and uh, I think we had been like thinking about this for a couple of weeks because this week we're going to have our first ever aquatic water issue um, of Commercial Observer, and we've actually managed to get like a couple of stories all about water and real estate. And, you know, I figure that, that why not? Let's, let's look at that. One of the first stories that we had is we have like, you know, a developer, well, I guess like a landlord, investor, whatever you want to call him, who is buying up water. So, Hava, tell us about who the heck is Bill Swaim? Um, so Bill Swaim is, a, uh, he lives in Delray Beach, and I first heard about him because he apparently assembled a couple of acres of land right on the intracoastal waterway that separates sort of the land mass of South Florida from the barrier islands. And he was selling it for, or he was, he put it on, he listed it for $43 million. Um, and, you know, it isn't very often that you find a three or four acre parcel of land on open water. Um, available and so a bunch of people picked that up and, and wrote about that so I started looking into it and noticed that this is not his first um, project of this sort and noticed that he had a lot of lawsuits going on um, all along sort of that area in Pompano Beach and Delray Beach and Ocean Ridge um, in Broward and Palm Beach County so got me curious and I started looking a little more into it and it, this is his gig. Well, so have a why? Why is this guy buying up acres and selling acres of uh, water along the Florida coast? Right. So in South Florida, the border between what's water and what's land is is pretty vague. I would say many much of South Florida is human made or has been dredged in different ways to create the land that exists today. And so what he's buying is water, but he basically is they it either used to be land or it can it can become land once it's filled in and so he's and he's basically saying that a lot of the property rights as we understand them as they belong to you know land that we recognize as land can also be applied to water since it can be filled in and made into land um, and especially in florida where there is such a history of you know these parcels changing from being submerged to becoming land there's a lot of legal theory around, you know, what makes something water, what makes something private, um, et cetera. And Swain, I mean, it's a very, 
it's very close to Swam. I just want to point out that the name Swam and Swam. Uh, so I, I, maybe that was the attraction to it or something. It's almost disappointing that it's not pronounced Swam. I, I feel like we should pitch him on the on the idea, maybe. But well, so you said something that I just want to go back to lawsuits. What what, what are these lawsuits uh, exactly? Tell us about them. Some of this is a gray area, and Swam has kind of a two part. Uh, case that he needs to make. The first is he needs to claim title to these lands. Many of them are, he got access to them because, you know, they were inherited by some family member who doesn't live there. um, And they don't, you know, they don't really know what to do with two acres of water or whatever the case may be. And so he sort of Uh, claims he buys them or he claims title to them and sometimes there's disputes around that and then he uh, basically sues people for uh, access to his water slash land so if you have a dock that is over his land or if you have a you're a fiber optics company that has a cable running through his land he'll basically sue you for access um and then not everybody likes that idea doesn't want to pay one hundred fifty thousand dollars to uh you know run their boat through what they consider to be open water um and so then he gets involved in litigation and you know his end game is to sell those lands eventually once they're sort of free of litigation but it's He's doing this on many different parcels, so there's, you know, he's involved in over 20 lawsuits. Uh-huh. Now, um, so it does seem like there are, like, two possible venues of profit for this guy. Like, he, he can charge people to, to, you know, as you say, use the, the water to actually get back and forth as a waterway, as like a toll booth almost. Um and that seems to be like what he's doing right now. But as you mentioned, Miami Beach is man-made, fabricated. And like you know, there's certainly cases in you know, I, I'm thinking of the, the of in Dubai. There's like you know, a man the the palm on Dubai is man-made sand. Um, in selling this, do potential buyers think that this is going to be? Like, you know, a toll or do they think that they or do they have something bigger in mind? Are they going to build the Dubai of America on this? That's a good question. I'm sure mostly the buyers, once he puts it to market, he is selling it as land that people can build on. In fact, the $43 million site that he is marketing at the moment, he is also offering to fill it um, so that it can you can build a single family house on it uh, for an additional like three point five million dollars, I think. Um, so yeah, the end game is to be able to build on it, and that particular piece is you know zoned for single family use. So it would basically be somebody's estate or mansion, and that would be pretty normal for that area. There's plenty of you know big fancy <laughs> houses on three acres of land. There's just not a lot of empty land in uh, in, Flor- in South Florida where somebody who wanted to start from scratch could do that. So you mentioned the $150,000. That's an actual number, right? That's the number that he was actually trying to charge people who like had, you know, beachfront property that were like pushing their boats back and forth, right? Yeah. So that's in a number of cases that was kind of the baseline amount, but one of the cases that we're highlighting in this that we highlighted in this story is about this creek that he he owns a little piece of the creek, and it's the only way for landowners who live along it to get out into the intracoastal. So they have to pass through his water in order to get out there, and so he was charging them. He initially charged them one hundred fifty thousand dollars to access it, and when they refused to, he basically sued them for for trespass. Um, so there were a couple of ho- uh, homeowners and as well as a 
condo that was on that creek as well, and they ended up settling with him, um, whereas the homeowners are still in litigation. How has he been, like, has he been, like, um, like keeping videos of these guys, of, like, you know, who passes the creek? I mean, like, what, what, how has he been, like, assembling his evidence for this? That is a good question. <laughs> I, I don't know. I Maybe he's just standing there, but I don't know how he keeps track because he has so many different ones, so... Installing cameras, maybe? He sounds, a, there's a little bit of a Floridian Robert Moses quality here that I'm seeing, but um, may, maybe that's just me. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's funny because he insists, like, I'm being the most rational person here. Like, why do you think that you should be allowed to access my water? It's private. It's, you know, like, nobody, nobody would say anything if I had a parking lot and people were driving across it and without permission. So he, you know, he's sort of like, I'm the rational one and everyone else is just, they, they don't understand how this the law works. But most people who have dealt with him that I've spoken to, uh, are less um, they don't they don't love his uh, his model of of making money off of their uh, the water they've been using for a long time to swim or boat or whatever it is they're doing. I would think not. Um, <laughs> uh, Kathy, had you ever heard of something like this? Like, do you think that there are other people outside of Florida in like you know other parts of the country or something who are like buying up the coast not to build on the sand but on the water or to toll on the water <laughs> um to my knowledge this is completely new and a great story but i'm um, certainly worrying on, on on various levels i think the one like last thing that's just important is that there is, it is the story of this one guy and but it's also it can have some really big impacts on how um on like property rights within Florida because because of the legal precedent that exists and that he might be creating and again because Florida has so much coastal land and you know there's so much com competition for what it should be used for whether for development or for you know mitigation now with flooding and so depending on how all of these cases turn out it could really end up affecting you know land ownership uh, all along the um, the coast of Florida. Mm. Um. Wow, no, it's it's a fascinating story. I I, I really, um, you know, it, it's a good one. Um, but it was only one of th three, or maybe even four, I guess we could say, um, water stories that we did this week. And um, Kathy, t tell us about your water story. Uh, so my water story is a little bit different for commercial observer, that's that's for sure. Um, basically what I'm doing is I'm looking into shipping traffic in the New York, New Jersey area, specifically the New York Bight Apex, which is a kind of triangular um, section of water just off the coast of New York. And it really stems from Cape May, New Jersey to Montauk. And why I'm looking at this is there's been over the past 10 years or so, a number of humpback whales have started visiting and traveling through New York waters. And there's also been recently an uptick in the number of deaths of um, uh, humpback whales. So to me, you know, as a reporter covering commercial real estate and watching the, the rise of e-commerce, the e-commerce ships have to be contributing to, to the death of these whales. So it's something I'm looking into this week and something that's obviously very different for us, but I'm really enjoying researching it. It's definitely not the easiest thing to research. <laughs> there, there are not a lot of people that can talk to both commercial real estate and also whales. But, um, you know, that's what I've been working on this week. So wait, you're saying that e-commerce has been killing the whales? Not e-commerce only. I would say the, the in, basically an uptick in the number of ships in New York, New Jersey um, area ports. Um, 
So, so basically, you know, if you think about all these massive, massive ships that are coming in and out of New York and New Jersey um, every year, uh, and then basically, you know, couple that with an in- increased number of uh, humpback whales, which are also using roughly the same channels to travel through our waters, that's a recipe for disaster. So there have been a number of news reports about humpback whales washing up on the shores of Long Island, New Jersey, New York, um, and I think there's a correlation there. Uh, and I've actually spoke with a, a nonprofit uh, for this story who seems to agree that, you know, the, the whales that have um, been found dead, the necropsies have shown blunt force trauma from ships. Um, and, you know, there's, it's just it's a really unfortunate thing. But I'm trying to basically figure out how these whales can continue to, to, to visit the New York, New Jersey area without being struck by um, vessels, which is it's a really hard thing to, to manage and also to, to, to navigate. What, what made you start looking into this? Well, okay, so here's here's a little secret about me. I'm a little bit of a whale nerd. <laughs> I kind of see myself as an amateur cytologist. Um, so I've been fascinated by whales for, for a long, long time. And actually, you know, in my spare time, I travel to places that the whales also, um, you know, travel to, such as Hawaii, um, Alaska, uh, even California. So um, every February, I go to Hawaii for humpback whale season, which is where the whales go to to mate, to to birth, uh, also to play. You can see them actually just breach from the shore in Hawaii. There, there's so many many of them in the water at that time. Um, in Alaska, I've seen orcas, uh, California blue whales. So it's something I'm really, really passionate about. And when I lived in New York, you know, I never um, knew the humpback whales were, were visiting. And they're actually, the, the reason I first found out about it was because I started reading all these news stories about humpback whales washing up on the shores of New York City. So um, that really made me sad. I wanted to figure out like what was happening, as, as, you know, as, as well as a lot of other, pe- other people that are interested in uh, whales and, you know, what's happening in, in the waters there. But um, I think it's just a, it's something that obviously is not a direct, you know, association with commercial real estate or e-commerce, but e-commerce is certainly contributing to what's happening there. Now, did the like e-commerce pick the particular shipping lines that they use um, for the same reasons that the whales are going to these like particular waters? So it's really interesting. So those I've spoken with so far said that basically humpback whales started frequenting New York waters more often because they have an increase in menhaden in the area, which are these tiny little fish that are a really great um, food source for whales. So basically these menhaden are all coming to New York, so the whales start to visit too, to feed. Um, and what happens is the shipping lanes that have been dredged are these deep shipping lanes that go in and out of the ports of New York, New York, New Jersey. Uh, and the whales, when they feed, are basically they're, they're lunge feeding. So they're coming down from below the, the bottom of the ocean to come up and feed on these, um, these fish, these Manhattan fish. And they're basically drawn to the shipping lanes because of how many Menhaden are there. So it's a great feeding spot for them. It's also a deeper spot that they can lunge feed from. So it's kind of a perfect storm because, you know, by by no means are, are the ships trying to hurt the whales. And I'm sure they'd avoid them if they knew they were there. But it's just it's a terrible situation where the whales are kind of feeding in the same spots that the ships are passing through. And so they're being hit by these ships. Ships often don't even know that they're there. Um, but it's, it's a really tragic thing. Um, so... I think just now, people I'm speaking with are saying they're trying to find a solution for this. Um, but as, as the years go on, as the, warms, the waters get warmer from climate change, as more whales come through there, there's going to be more um, humpback whales dying in, in New York and New Jersey. So um, it's, it's not a good situation, but definitely something that I'm trying to research and find out more about. Is this something that other, air, other places have addressed? Because you said that in New York, it's fairly new that there's uh, this many whales in the water so it's kind of something new that they're dealing with 
Yeah, so um, some people that I spoke with said, like, you know, a lot of big ships don't even know that whales are there because they don't associate humpback whales with New York City. Um, and whales are visiting the area, you know, June, July, August, this kind of the summer months. Um, but for other markets, such as I mentioned, you know, um, California, even you know, Hawaii, they're very, very accustomed to whales in the water. And so I think any ships that are visiting these shores are far more aware and on you know, high alert for, for whales being in the water. Uh, but from what I can gather from my research, in New York and New Jersey, there are really about seven small boats that are kind of looking out for whales during the summer months to alert the big shipping companies via, you know, transmit, transmitter radio. Um, but that's really not enough to, to warn, you know, the volume of traffic that's coming in at our port. So it's a very hard situation. But um, part of my research is looking into other markets who also have very busy shipping ports, also have busy e-commerce shipping activity in that area and see how they're navigating that. Well, I can say I am, I know nearly as much about whales as you, but I did learn about whales today because I happened to be listening to a podcast where um, it was talking about uh, the psychology of animals. And it was saying how like, since in the past, we uh, people used to use uh, whale oil and other uh, whale products, I guess, we were less kind of open to the idea that whales, you know, all of the, we were less open to the idea about whale psychology and the fact that like now people are so into whales and whale song and we know so much about them and like people really love whales and but it's only been in the last you know whatever 60 years or something that science has really spent more time uh, learning about whales and it's partially because before that you know we we used them so uh, I thought that was interesting. Oh, definitely. I mean, I know that not for me, everybody's into whales, but I think it's, uh, they're such beautiful, majestic creatures, you know, and I think anything that we can do as an industry to try and safeguard uh, the, the species, and I think it's, it's something that we really should be kind of more focused on. Um, and I will say, if you're if you're all interested in whales and you ever manage to find yourself in Hawaii in February, it's, it's just it's incredible. You can see them breach from the shore. If you put your head under the water, you can actually hear them communicate back and forth. There's so many in the water at that time, so you can actually hear just with you know naturally you can hear the, the whale songs back and forth. So it's a really beautiful thing. So um, I would encourage anybody to try and get to Hawaii in February <laughs> if you can. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not you just know. for the whales, but um. I was gonna, I was gonna say, I feel like that's that's a sell, that's a very, that's an easy sell. It's an easy sell for sure. It's, way, it's whaley cool though, you know. Oh God, Kathy, <laughs> <laughs> you were waiting for that. Yeah, oh, I was waiting for that. that. I was trying to be finny. <laughs> You were waiting for that one too. All right, <laughs> let's. <laughs> let me ask you this though: um, Have any? Have you been able to get any? Like you know. Um, industrial owners to, to talk about this? Do, are they aware of the problem or anything like that? So this is the this is the battle that I have because I think a lot of people can either talk about whales or they can talk about commercial real estate, which is completely understandable. They're two very, very different topics. Um, so so no, I have not had any luck really. Um, and so far in terms of, you know, speaking with some of the people um, who are obviously receiving you know, e-commerce ships and, and what have you. Um, but um, that's one thing that's a little bit of a hard subject because I think people, while they can talk to e-commerce, you know, shipping volume and what have you, they really can't talk to whales. But I do think there is a lack of awareness about, you know, what's basically what's underneath these ships as they're traveling. I think a lot of people don't really realize that they are that that amount of whales in the water in New York at that at that time. 
Um, a lack of awareness, yes. A lack of awareness, um, yeah. That's yeah, actually yeah. a really good headline. I'm spending, I'm spending too much time <laughs> with you, Gavin. Like I'm just like, <laughs> rubbing, rub, rubbing off on you. I'm not even going to compete with you guys. You can do all of the okay. whale puns that you want. Um, <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> So yeah, so it's been a, a difficult, um, from that perspective, it's been difficult and I completely understand because it's just, it's not a topic that everybody can speak to, but um, it's something that's, you know, I think is really important and anybody that listens to this podcast and has any thoughts on it also, I'd love to hear from you um, after the fact. C. Cunningham at commercialobserver.com. Um, so, and we have two more uh, stories this week that have an aquatic water-like uh, backstory with them, uh, but I think time is running low so let's just briefly discuss them um hava why don't you tell us a little bit about anna's story sure um so uh one of the other stories looks at the uh kind of conflict that we're seeing in some cases between preservation and adaptation so in cities uh let's say like new orleans where you know there's flooding there's a push to adapt to uh, new water levels and to flooding and everything like that at the same time there's you know they want to be able to preserve the city as it is and preserve what the, sp the specific culture of the place that makes it what it is and so sometimes those can be in conflict but you know in many cases they're trying to work to make both goals work in tandem so that when you adapt a city to new um, potentially new uh, climate threats. It's not about just kind of tearing it apart and you know, or building a seawall right in front of you know the downtown Miami or something like that. But it's it's keeping the culture of the place and the history of the place intact while also um, uh, accounting for climate and other uh, weather events. Um, and just with, with New Orleans, it's interesting because you know they've always been dealing with water and with flooding and for one example of that is like it's famous for the cemeteries where the um where the the mounds are above ground because the 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 water floods i mean the the area floods so so often that they couldn't really bury people beneath the ground you're talking about like the mausoleums the above ground uh graves yeah those had been like a big part of uh, i had always associated that with new orleans because they they would get flooded and um that was sort of their preservation technique uh, for making sure that, the, I guess, their dead did not wash away. Um, so um, that was one story that we're, that, that was a third story that we're doing. Um, and then we have a fourth um, that Andrew Cohen is doing. Um, Kathy, what, what is Andrew working on? So, so Mr. Andrew Cohen is working on a story about basically how some of the people in our industry spend their summers. Um, it started out as a, you know, where in the Hamptons do you go? Because the Hamptons is such a hotspot for commercial real estate professionals. Um, but he's actually had some quite surprising results. Um, what started as a Hampton story is now basically, you know, which body of water do you, do you like to be next to the summer? Um, so mm. we've actually kind of got, you know, some summer responses that people like to go to California. Um, somebody likes to go to Colorado, actually. Um, um, so some are, you know, rather mountains and water, but um, it's really just a kind of, you know, lighter hearted story in terms of where people are spending their summers, how they're basically chilling out after a really brutal market this year um, and how they're getting some R&R. &R. So wait, what, what happened to South Florida? Isn't that the sixth borough of New York? I feel like didn't ever, or, or did they all move there already? <laughs> so now they just live there. Exactly. Well, with that, let's just say to our readers and our listeners, unwind. These are four great stories, um, perfect for summer, and um, 
Thanks, guys. Hava Garari, Kathy Cunningham, and I'm Max Gross for Commercial Observer. Well, that wraps up this week's Backstory episode. Did you know that our podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? Just search Backstory and I'm sure we'll pop up. While you're at it, give us a review if you don't mind. We'd love to hear what you think and your support helps us continue to produce these great episodes week to week. Until next time.